This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. Good evening, everybody. So, um, and we thought we'd start by just giving a, a brief introduction to, to our research, to our science, which is what you, you don't see on, on television, but what, what we're doing in our, in our day jobs, as it were. So um, I suppose I should invite Alice to start. So my research is, um, is very focused on the skeleton. It's focused on bones. Um, for some reason, I've always been interested in ancient bones. And I originally trained as a medic, as a medical doctor, and then got sidetracked into anatomy. And once that had happened, it was almost inevitable that I was going to start looking at bones um, because I'd been fascinated by them since I was a child. And the world of the skeleton gives us this incredible insight into... Uh, into evolution, because most of the fragments of, of ancestors that we have um, are skeletal fragments, because that's what fossilizes. And um, we can also get really good ideas about how animals move and how they adapt to their environments, looking at their skeletons, and then trying to reconstruct all of the soft tissue around that. Um, so my research is is is... I suppose, in a very narrow way about the human skeleton. In a broader way, it's about human evolution. It's about comparative anatomy, comparing ourselves with, with other animals um, in order to actually learn more about ourselves. Okay, so, so my, very briefly, my research, as, as was mentioned in, in the introduction, I'm a particle physicist. I started, though, working in astroparticle physics. So the, the first bit of research I did was on... Uh, supernova neutrinos. So neutrinos are particles, three of the 12 particles of matter. Um, perhaps unfamiliar, but they carry 99% of the energy of a supernova explosion. Uh, they're intimately involved in nuclear fusion in the sun. There are something like 60 billion per centimeter squared per second passing through your head now from the sun, from the nuclear reactions in the sun. They, they interact very weakly with normal matter. And so it's very difficult to detect them, fortunately for us, because there's a rain of them uh, falling down on us. And they, they, most of them pass straight through the earth unimpeded. So I worked on building detectors to detect those things. Then I started working on electron-proton collisions, uh, an accelerator called DAISY in Hamburg. Uh, then I moved on to proton anti-proton collisions in Chicago with an accelerator called Fermilab and now I work on proton-proton collisions at the Large Hadron Collider at the LHC. Um, the main results, as most of you I suspect will know, is that we found this uh, new particle, a completely new fundamental particle called the Higgs particle um, whose job it is to give mass to everything else in the universe. So we think that less than a billionth of a second after the Big Bang or so um, empty space uh, stopped being empty. The, the, the lowest energy configuration, if you like, of emptiness is not to be empty, but it's to be filled with Higgs particles or a Higgs field, if you prefer that language. So the idea is that the Higgs condensed out into the vacuum of space sometime less than a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. It's been there ever since, and your particles now, the particles that make up your body, at the most fundamental level, so let's say the electrons in the atoms in your body, get their mass because they interact with this condensate that permeates the universe. So that's um, 
what I've been working on for a while. So some of your research, or in fact, very fundamentally your research, is about the, the beginning of everything, the beginning of the, beginning of the universe, and then, and then what you've been exploring more recently with your recent series and your recent book um, brings us all the way to us um, and looks at the, the probability of us, us being here at all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, the human universe actually is, is the most, um, I think, it's the most heavily influenced series that I've made by, by Cosmos. See, see, I grew up with Cosmos. I've said it many times. I think Carl Sagan is certainly one of my heroes. And Cosmos, I think, is the, for me, the greatest science series that's ever been made. Brian, do you not years. find him just a little bit creepy? I, we, we've had this debate. <laughs> we, we've had, we had this argument. Um, but when we last had this argument about a month ago, Brian Blessed was involved as well, which was a... <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Actually, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to start doing Brian Blessed impressions. <laughs> I want to go to Mars! You no, are. Right, I am. I? Um, so, but anyway, um, the, reason, the, the thing that I found most, I think, in, enticing about Cosmos when I saw it, I, I was 12 years old when it was broadcast, is that it was, it was an astronomy series and a cosmology series, and I was interested in astronomy. But it, it, it used the discoveries of astronomy and cosmology and, and physics in general, science in general, to speak about us. It was, a, it was an act of emotional engagement as well as just engagement with scientific ideas. And so I, I think that the questions such as if... Well, we know that there are 350 billion galaxies in the observable universe, so that's the bit that we can see. And we know that the universe extends beyond that bubble, which is currently about 90 billion light years across or so. So we know it extends beyond that. Uh, we, you can debate, and we don't know whether it's infinite in extent. It might be. And so that, to me, immediately raises questions about us. What is our place? And obviously, physically, we're irrelevant. But are we really irrelevant? Which I think goes back to, to, to your work. It's a, how do you... Is it even a scientific question to put a value on the, on the human race, on, on, on the existence of humans? How likely are we to exist? I mean, how... Your book is called The Incredible Unlikeliness of Being. Uh, I suppose for an individual, we wrestle with this in the human universe, any individual, it seems incredibly unlikely that an individual will exist. Yeah, so it does. Me. Yeah. I, mean, I, I kind of start off with that premise in the book because if you, if you think about it, if you think about the, the unlikeliness of your own existence and the, and the chance of you not being here, the chance of you not being here is far greater than the chance of you being here. Um, even, even by the time your mother had met your father the chances of you being here are still infinitesimally small because um, it was that one egg and it was that one sperm. And it was also, in fact, not just that one egg and one sperm, but it was the environment in your mother's womb at that time as well, interacting with um, that newly formed individual, the DNA from your, from your mother and your father. So the, the chances of you being here is, is really quite... Tiny. It's, it's, it's interesting, actually, because one of, one of the things that I've become interested in recently, which you would have seen in, in Human Universe, because these programs tend to be... Uh, yours are the same, I think. They tend to be what interests you at the time, don't you? tend mm. to just... I've just got really into this, so let's film that. And one of the things I got interested in was inflationary cosmology, which in its most extreme form is, is, runs almost parallel. The same issues apply, but not to, to people, but to universes. So, so in these theories, you, you get each time a, a universe is born, so there's a, there's a Big Bang, uh, which is connected to something else, some other multiverse, whether there are other universes, and you can shuffle the, the laws of nature in these universes. You can shuffle the physical constant. So you get a different... There's presumably some overarching physical theory, some, some laws of nature that we don't ne yet know. And the ones that we see, the strength of gravity, the mass of the electron, and all those fundamental numbers, uh, are actually emergent properties that emerge quite by chance, probably, in, in the production of the universe. So in that sense, universes themselves are like people. Each one is different, except that there may be an infinite number of them. Which means, actually, that our existence is inevitable. So, it's, <laughs> so, so, the, so the unlikeliness of being is, is, is in a sense, a local statement. 
I mean, it's as if you say, if there were an infinite number of humans, then every, every possible human would exist. I mean, it's a, a mathematical statement, I suppose. So if we just rein it in a bit and think about just our universe and what's going on in this universe, how many um, galaxies are there where there are Earth-like planets that could possibly sustain life as we know it? So, so the, the, we've made a measurement of, a statistical measurement of the number of Earth-like planets in the Milky Way. So in the Milky Way galaxy, in our galaxy, there are of order 200 billion stars. And we think around one in 10 of them has an Earth-like planet in the sense that it's a rocky planet uh, close enough to the star that, it's, that, that it could have liquid water on its surface, but not too close that it would boil away. So we think about 20 billion uh, Earth-like planets, potentially 20 billion in the Milky Way galaxy. So that's in our close neighbourhood? That's in our 200 billion, uh, yeah, 100,000 light years across little corner. And then there are 350 billion galaxies in the observable universe. It's a statistical statement. We've detected just under 2,000 planets beyond the solar system, so confirmed discoveries. And of those, we have a number that we think could be rocky planets, and that's how you, you do the sums, basically. So it's a lot of potential homes for life. Which then, I, I, before I go to, before we ask for you questions, the one question, though, is how likely do you think it is that life emerges on a world... Let's say you've got a world with liquid water, which is relatively stable. So how likely is life to spontaneously emerge in that world? I think as long as you've got some um, fundamental um, elements there for, for life to form, and, and I suppose those, those would include um, things like um, carbon and, and, and phosphorus and, and oxygen um, and various others, um, I actually think it's quite likely. I think it is quite likely now. Um, what I don't think is likely is that complex life emerges so I think, that, I think that simple life emerging is, is actually quite likely and likely to just happen because um, we've done experiments um, looking at um, creating organic chemicals from inorganic chemicals, and we know that that happens. And we also know that these natural experiments are actually happening um, on Earth right now at the bottom of the sea in these deep sea vents where there are lots and lots of almost tiny test tubes where experiments are going on all the time, um, mixing different types of chemicals together um, in a heated environment. And we, and we think at the moment that that's probably the most likely um, origin for, for life on this planet. Um, and, it's, and it's not a terribly um, complex setup, so I can imagine that happening on other planets. But I suppose the... the so, so one piece of evidence, I suppose, is that it seemed to have emerged almost as soon as it could on Earth, at least 3.8 billion years yes. ago. Yes, soon after what I believe is called the late heavy bombardment, because mm. yeah. nothing can survive the water that. Comes back. <laughs> well, that's one of the questions, actually. One of the things the Rosetta probe is trying to do is trying to look at the water on that, on that comet to see if it's the same... It has the same characteristics, the same mixture of isotopes, if you know that language, of, so, so the same composition that the water on Earth has. Because the, the most, probably the most widely accepted theory is that the Earth was very hot uh, when it was formed about 4.54 billion years ago, and so the water would have been driven off. Um, so you wouldn't have much water in the inner solar system. You find lots of water in the outer solar system. And then it looks like it came back in again. And the question is how much of the Earth's oceans perhaps survived below the surface and bubbled back up, or perhaps were delivered by cometary impacts you know, way four billion years ago or so. Um, so that's one of the open questions. But and once we got water... Could these comets even have brought life as well? I mean, that's a... I mean, this is another, another thing question. that the Rosetta mission and the Thillet lander is, is trying to look for organic molecules, see how complex they are. You know, we, we find amino acids certainly out there in space. We know that there are complex organic molecules. But the question is, I suppose, how did those become replicators? So we... Should we, should we take some questions we and then we'll move we? on to replicators? So, well, there was a, there was a, there's a hand that went up very quickly there. <laughs> it's either a great sign that or an aggressive move. <laughs> which is, <laughs> but we'll see. We've it's got the gentleman there with the phone, so there we go. Good evening. Um, you're very close to the House of Commons here. Have you got any thoughts on the interaction between politics and science and science and politics? Is science politically neutral? 
Uh, Alice could start. I've got lots, so many thoughts. I could speak. Do you want to offer some I think, um, I think scientists try um, their hardest to be politically neutral. I think it's very difficult to say, is science politi- politically neutral? Because science is carried out by scientists. And individuals, by their very nature, are not politically neutral. But we try very hard to be very, very objective. I think that in terms of the relationship between um, science and politics, what I would like to see is politicians looking at the scientific evidence and taking that into account. I know that politicians, when they're forming their policies, are obviously not just forming those policies on the basis of scientific evidence, but on the basis of lots of other things as well, on the basis of what they think people in a democracy want, on the basis of what they think is going to win them the next election, on the basis of lots of other things other than that scientific evidence. But what I would really like them to do is be honest about that. So to be honest when they are formulating a policy... Um, which is quite clearly to the scientists not following the scientific evidence, but they pretend it is. Because in doing that, they really muddy the waters, I think. Oh, well, was, were we talking about Brunowski? No, we weren't. Someone else was talking about Brunowski. <laughs> was, was that great moment in, in The Ascent of Man when Brunowski is in uh, Auschwitz and he goes down on his mm. knees in Auschwitz? And, and the point he makes is that, is that we, are, we are human because we're fallible we're fallible and science is human because it's fallible it's the only discipline that acknowledges its own fallibility and is actually built on its own fallibility so that's the point about science that's why science is successful and why ultimately even if you are that even if you're political briefly in your science you know we could go back to to Galileo maybe and the, and the struggles there and, and, the, and the fact, you know, perhaps people were not quite straightforward about what they were thinking and saying because of the pressures on them. But, but it won't last long because nature is there and nature is the gold standard against which theories are judged. So you could delay it a little bit. But I don't think that if you're talking about the, the, the grand sweep of science, it can't be political for long. That's the, the power of it, I think. Should we take another question? Is there anybody um, over this side? Yes, there's a, um, a lady near the front there, I think in a grey top. Difficult to see. Hi, good evening. Um, I'm very happy to be here, but my question is, what, is, what was before the Big Bang? <laughs> oh. I think, is there any clue where you, they found the time, yes. the energy, the space, yep. what it's, was before that? It's actually a, 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 an easier Thank question you. to answer now than it was um, 20 years ago. Because as, as I mentioned, in, in the 80s, this theory, the theory of inflation, appeared, which has gained ground and is now the most widely accepted theory of what happened before the Big Bang. So the, the, the Big Bang is defined as the time when the universe was very hot and very dense. And it's been expanding ever since. And that's the measurement we make. So we have a measurement, which is the universe is 13.798 plus or minus 0.035 billion years old. That's what we measured. But that measurement is the, is the point, uh, the, the, this point when it was very hot and very dense. Um, before that, we're now almost certain that it was expanding exponentially. So space-time was expanding exponentially for faster than the speed of light. There's exponential expansion. And we don't know when that started. Um, there's a debate about whether it could have been going on forever or not. Um, th- there may be technical reasons that it couldn't. Um, so you, if, you, if you want to Google it, there are things called geodesic completeness and all sorts of very technical arguments in general relativity. But it's not, it's not accepted. There's no consensus. But it, it, so so you, we can say, I could say that most cosmologists will say there was a time before the Big Bang when the universe was expanding exponentially fast. Whether that was going on forever is debatable. But it's interesting. Going back to the statement, we were talking about politics and science, and how politics can sometimes slow down science. So Giordano Bruno, famously in 1600, was burnt at the stake, um, most probably because he asserted that the universe was eternal. And of course, that was, that was challenging. It wasn't because he was a supporter of Copernicus, really. Copernicus was not the, the, the sun-centered universe. That was not heretical at the time. But what was heretical was asserting an eternal universe. 
because then you are in interest in theological territory with regards to a creator. What does it mean to be a creator of a universe that's eternal and has been around forever? Is this such a thing necessary? It's interesting, actually, because Leibniz is... Uh, very sound argument for the existence of God actually um, requires it's about causes it's about co- you know can if something something should be either logically necessary in which case it's eternal or it's not logically necessary in which case it has a cause and there's once you essentially you're fitting into Leibniz's view and saying well there is something that's logically necessary and is eternal and it is the inflationary cosmos so it's very it's a very interesting time I think in physics I I emphasize that this is not it's cutting edge and so there's no definitive statement to make other than inflation probably happened it looks like that's correct and I think one of the really interesting things about um, looking at the history of science and looking at the history of ideas changing over time, because that's obviously what happens with science, is that um, humans have become more and more insignificant, um, that we've been knocked off one pedestal after another, um, and that, that perhaps one of those pedestals was imagining ourselves at the centre of a, of a universe and at the centre of the, the solar system, certainly, mm. I mean, I could ask you just before we take another question, but the, so the idea of a civilization, this thing that, by the, by the way, Frank Drake, the astronomer that, who was one of the founding fathers of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, defines an intelligent civilization as one that can do radio astronomy. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, reason, the reason it's is it's an observational <laughs> definition because if you're going to detect one then you'll probably have to do it with radio telescopes although we could talk about it so, so what about that an intelligent civilization in the sense it can build radio telescopes how likely are those without putting a number on it I would say vanishingly small yeah, because I, uh, you know, at the end of the day we are if we, if, we, if we look at our own trajectory and we look at our own evolution um, there are there are times when you can um, see that humans um, were an endangered species and that it was actually chance that we got through those bottlenecks. Yeah, there were the, so what was the population size in some of these bottlenecks? Well, probably, small, you know, times when, when, you know, we would have said they were an endangered species today because there would have been um, a few thousand of that species. So literally around. a few thousand humans left. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, the, in that case, we're, we're actually incredibly lucky to be here. And I'm, it's really interesting, I think, philosophically, looking at both sides of this coin and, and talking about the inevitability on the one hand, given um, the multiverses, um, and, then the, and then the vanishingly small chance on the other, um, which certainly, um, it doesn't make me feel insignificant. It makes me feel extremely lucky to be here, whether I'm thinking about that in terms of um, the cosmos or actually the chances of my mum and dad meeting each other. Um, the, yeah, the thing that I get from that is not a feeling of insignificance mm. and, uh, and that I don't mean anything, but that actually that I have to create meaning because I'm very lucky to be here. Yeah. Um, so it is, a, yeah, it is a very interesting philosophical question, I think, yeah. and how it makes us feel is interesting. John, John Updike once wrote that he said, he said astronomy is, is what we now have instead of theology. It's got less of the terrors but none of the comforts. <laughs> <laughs> but looking at the trajectory of evolution and there are some things which you can say okay well once you had something in place then other things were um, not necessarily inevitable but, but quite likely. Um, and we can see this happening several times um, in the evolution of life on the planet. So there are some interesting changes um, from reptiles to early mammals. And one of the interesting changes is that um, we find the development of a three-ossicle system in the ear. So reptiles have a single ossicle, a single tiny bone which connects to their eardrum, whereas mammals have three in a chain, which helps to improve their hearing. And we now know, looking at the fossil record, because that seems a, you know, it seems a kind of vanishingly unlikely thing for that to happen, for suddenly two extra ossicles to appear from the reptilian jaw joint. They were stolen from the reptilian jaw joint and sucked inside the ear. And you think, well, gosh, that seems unlikely. But we now know from the fossil record that happened at least four times in different places. 
So you obviously had um, animals that were kind of almost predisposed um, to go down those, those evolutionary trajectories. So there is constraint there as well. But then there's, you have to balance that with really um, quite kind of random um, happenings, like Chicxulub mm. slamming into the, into the earth um, 65 million years ago and finishing off the dinosaurs. And I have absolutely no doubt that if that hadn't happened, if that huge asteroid hadn't slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula... Um, mammals would not have expanded in the way they did. Mammals would not have diversified in the way that they did after that. And if mammals didn't expand and radiate out and diversify, you would never have had primates, you would never have had monkeys, you would never have had apes, you would never have had us. Shall we take some more questions? Hello. On my way here, I heard on the 6 o'clock news Professor Hawking saying that he was very concerned that he now had a machine which seemed to be able to read his mind. And he felt that evolution was going to come not through the human being, but through machines reproducing themselves, reproducing their power of thought, want of a better word, far, far quicker than the human being is able to do. And he was, we heard him speaking, and he was very concerned. I'd like to know what your comments are on that. What do you think about that, Brian? What do you think about the idea that, um, I mean, this is a, we've we've heard this before, this idea that, that other replicators that we create are eventually going to take over, and then we'll become truly insignificant. Is it? It's a, so so the, the first question is, um, can you have a conscious machine, if you can find some definition of, of a conscious machine? I suspect you can, I would guess. I'd be interested to know what you think. If, if you look at the human brain, it, it, there is a project, I should say, a big multi-billion euro project to, to simulate a human brain at the moment. And it's very controversial because some neuroscientists think it, it's not going to be possible with our technology with any foreseeable horizon actually so they think it may be a waste of money others think that you should we should try it and so we are trying it if you build a computer that's capable of reproducing the complexity of a, of a human brain then you can program it with the complexity of the algorithms that we run do you produce a sentient thing do you produce a conscious thing does it think um then you, you're into sort of Blade Runner territory. Does it have rights? It's interested, interesting moral questions. I suspect the answer must be yes to those things. I, I would guess, I don't know, because I think the human brain has to be what's called a universal Turing machine, after Alan Turing, um, who pointed out that all algorithmic machines are in some sense identical. If our brain doesn't operate according to the laws of physics, then I, I, I don't know how it operates. I, I think it must operate in, in accord with the laws of physics. So therefore, I think consciousness must be an emergent property. So therefore, I have to think there can be intelligent machines in principle. There are just one more point before I hand over to Alice. There's the, the, a counter-argument, a counter-argument comes from an unlikely source. It's something called the Fermi paradox. Uh, the Fermi paradox points out, is Enrico Fermi, the great physicist in the 50s, pointed this out. That given that we've got 200 billion stars in our galaxy, and given that the galaxy has been around for pretty much the age of the universe, 13 billion years, there have been plenty of opportunities, which so much time and so many worlds for intelligent civilizations to emerge, and yet we don't see any sign at all of their self-replicating machines, that if it's possible to build them, they should surely have built. They have had time to build. We don't see them. They're called von Neumann machines. And in human universe, I use this as one of the arguments to suggest that possibly intelligence is very rare. So possibly there are very few civilizations. But you could argue that it's actually not possible to build self-replicating machines of that complexity. So it's a... What, what, what do you think about that? Do, uh, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think that um, we're already at a point now with um, synthetic biology where um, scientists have, have built um, replicating cells, have built entirely synthetic cells um, from scratch. 
so putting them together with the building blocks of life. Um, so they haven't just taken a, an existing cell and, and altered it slightly, they've actually created one from scratch. So somebody that's done that is Craig Venter, who um, was also working on, the, um, on deciphering the, the human genome. And he's called his, um, he's called his synthetic life form Cynthia, <laughs> with an S. Um, so we are at the point with synthetic biology now where we, where we can actually build cells. Um, and that's really interesting. We're also at the point, obviously, where we can um, tinker with existing cells so they start doing other things, so their function changes and inserting bits of DNA into them and, and, and things like that. But in terms of complex organisms, I think we're a very, very long way away from it. Although I think that theoretically, just as you say, I mean, I, I'm, I would say, yes, that, that we are machines. Um, we are conscious machines, which is amazing. But I think the con- that consciousness is, a, is an emergent property um, of what is going on um, with the physics and the chemistry um, inside our heads. And that it is incredibly complex. I mean, there are um, scientists trying to, trying to map the connections in the human brain. And, you know, first of all, you're talking about 83 billion neurons in the human brain and then thousands of synapses between um, one neuron and other neurons. So the, so the complexity of it is, is absolutely mm. mind-boggling. Um, but there are, there are scientists doing this. Well, actually, they're working on mice at the moment because they're much easier than, than, than humans. Sure. Right, that one right at the back there is very, very... <laughs> In the purple again, light. I'm sci- I, uh... Uh, you talked about Carl Sagan earlier on. Uh, and uh, in one of his books, he talked about um, any civilization at some point would have to discover the means of its own self-destruction. And either you come through that or you don't. And I guess he's obviously talking about... Um, nuclear weapons I just wonder what, if you had a comment about that the, the, there's a phrase called the great filter I think Nick, Nick Bostrom and his, his group uh, they're at Cambridge aren't they I think or they're at Oxford um, anyway, it's, it's Oxford they, they, um, they talk about this idea that let's say that we're trying to find the answer an explanation for the fact we don't see many intelligent civilizations out there then you can say well is, is there a filter? Is there something that prevents them from moving beyond this early phase of technological maturity that we find ourselves in now? As you say, maybe it's the discovery of nuclear weapons that, that ultimately wipes out most civilizations. Once you have the means to destroy yourself, as we now do, then you do it. And of course, we nearly did it. Cuban Missile Crisis being a good example, and there are probably many others that we don't know about, uh, nuclear accidents and things. So, so the question is, is the filter... If there is such a filter, if we want to explain why we don't see any civilizations, is the filter in our future or our past? If it's in the past, then we're probably talking about biology again, which we. So we're probably saying, well, well, you know, maybe it's the we could talk about it. Perhaps, perhaps it's the emergence of the eukaryotic cell that we chatted mm. about before we came on stage. So maybe talk about that. Um, so. Uh, there's that. We, we don't know, of course. We've avoided destroying ourselves so far, uh, I think. Can I pick up on eukaryotic cells? Yeah. So this is a, a, a huge leap um, in life on Earth and the, and the potential for life on Earth to become complex. Um, most of life on this Earth, in terms of numbers and in terms, actually, shockingly, of mass as well, is single-celled. Um, which I've always found shocking. I think, you know, if you added up just all the elephants, I mean, surely that's more than, you know, that weighs more than all the bacteria on Earth, but no. Um, Now that we know that bacteria live very deep in the Earth's crust and at the bottom of the oceans, and actually, you know, there are more bacterial cells here sitting on this chair than there are eukaryotic cells, um, they do outnumber us and outweigh us. Um, And they are simple, and, and and I do think that, we probably are going to find evidence of that kind of simple life elsewhere. And I'm really, really excited about the results from Feely whenever we'll hear about those. Because um, we know that Feely, although, although she probably shut down um, very soon after landing because she managed to get in the shadow of a cliff, um, we, we have had data sent back from the samples that she managed to collect before her batteries ran out. And I'm desperate to know what, what, what that is. Um, what that data tells us. Um, so the evolution of eukaryote cells, um, which basically paved the way for the development of multicellular organisms, of which we are all one, um, 
depended on being able to take a genetic code and interpret it in different ways. Um, to take one genetic code and interpret it so that you could create different cell types from the same genetic code. Because that's what you've done. You've started off with one genetic code. Um, half of your DNA from your mum, half of your DNA from your dad. And that's the same genetic code in every single cell in your body, apart from a few which have accumulated maybe a mutation here and there. But essentially the same genetic code. And yet some of those cells are liver cells, and some of them are nerve cells, and some of them are producing hair, and some of them are um, producing insulin. I mean, there's a remarkable diversity of cells just from that that one cell with that, with that, with that one um, genetic code in it. And prokaryotes have never been able to do that. So understanding how eukaryotes did that, how does a eukaryotic cell take that genetic code and interpret it in different ways, understanding that gives us the key to understanding in evolutionary terms how you get from prokaryotic life to eukaryotic life. But it also underpins the, the whole of embryological development and, and how our how our genetic code actually um, allows the body to differentiate and all these different cell types to appear and build a body. And then there are several um, ideas of how the eukaryotes got that ability or came into existence. Like there's one is the fateful encounter hypothesis, which I think you mentioned to me you don't necessarily agree with, but this idea where you get a... You, you get a, a it's called endosymbio- endosymbiosis, where you get one cell inside another... And that was the origin of mitochondria, which are the power stations of the cell, which are, are bacterial in origin. I think everyone mm. agrees with that. Mm. Don't but that was the, the, the foundation upon which the eukaryote developed. But that's one theory, isn't it? That, that yeah, it is. Um, I, um, and, I, and, and it is, yeah, it's one theory that, that, that a lot of people would have as their favourite theory. Um, and, and, and I, and I um, certainly accept that mitochondria and chloroplasts as well in plant cells are um, were, or were originally um, smaller cells which were engulfed by another cell. And they have their own DNA as well. So they have a little loop of DNA um, which you only inherit from your mother because you don't get any of your father's mitochondrial DNA because your father just contributed his, his genomic, his, um, his nuclear DNA to you. Um, it, everything else came from the egg which contained your mother's mitochondria. So you can trace, you can look at the DNA, just the DNA inside the mitochondria, and trace a line back um, through your maternal lineage, going through to, through your mother to your mother's mother to your mother's mother to your mother's mother. If you do that for everybody on Earth, you end up with a common ancestor 200,000 years ago, um, who some people call mitochondrial Eve. Um, I think it's an unfortunate term because it suggests there was just one woman around at the time, <laughs> and there was there was probably an Adam at the same time, which we, which we know wasn't the case. Um, but we do have a common ancestor um, tracing back all our um, mitochondrial lines. Anyway, so that's what mitochondria are, and um, and and how they can help to reveal some of our own evolution. Um, but in terms of whether they are the necessary step in going from prokaryotes to eukaryotes, um, they certainly would have made um, more energy available to that eukaryotic cell. But I think that potentially there's something more interesting going on. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Where are we going? We have to go that way, don't we? We do, yeah. So someone's actually gone to the trouble of standing up. Oh, no, that, that, because that's the person with the microphone. Hi, I'm Brian. In Human Universe, you touch on a number of areas of science. There's cosmology, uh, evolutionary biology, physics. And Darwin famously draw inspiration from Malthus and geology. When you look at science these days, there's so much specialisation. People become expert in a certain field. They can devote their whole career to 
being expert in one area. Um, my question is, how much sharing is there across disciplines and specialisms? Um, and how much do you think we're, we're missing out? We're losing uh, what we could be gaining from the, the body of knowledge we have because of lack of sharing. It's a very um, hot topic in universities, actually, this. We, it's the, the, the great advances now, I think, are interdisciplinary. I mean, you... Our colleague uh, Jim Al-Khalili has just written a book uh, surveying the field of quantum biology, which is a, a completely new field where, where physicists and biologists are getting together and molecular biologists and, and chemists trying to understand how photosynthesis works, for example, which seems to be an area that you need that collaboration. There could well be quantum mechanical effects, that large-scale quantum mechanical effects that, that, that are important in understanding how... Um, chlorophyll works, for example, and how photosynthesis works in particular. So, so um, the, the, I think it's a very good question. I should say the, um, the Crick Institute, which uh, Sir Paul Nurse is, is, is overseeing now, has been built at King's Cross in London. Um, that is a, a, an example of this new paradigm where you try and mix people up from different disciplines. In, in that case, it's a, it's a cancer research institute. But the idea is that you have mathematicians and physicists and biologists and they force them by the architecture of the institute to interact. And this is Paul's great, um, great idea. That this is what he wanted to do. And the way you force them to do it is, is, if you know scientists, is you make them walk past each other on the way to the coffee area. <laughs> so you, you design coffee areas that are communal. And also I think they've done it with the toilets because they know there are certain things you have to do <laughs> to, to get to, in your working day. But the idea of the architecture is to do just what you said and mi mix it up. This is utterly fascinating because it's treating people um, like the, the molecules in those deep sea vents and the little test tubes, and it's kind of putting them all in and, and sort of mixing them up and mm. injecting a little bit of heat in yeah. and then seeing what's going to come out of it. Yeah. I, just, I think it's... A, I mean, we, we try it now at... At Manchester, a lot, a lot of it's down to architecture, actually, the architecture in universities. So the new, trying to not have the physicists stay in the physics department and the, and the biologists stay in, the, in life sciences, we, we're really thinking about that now. Um, because I think so traditionally really we've um, been very good in universities at um, dividing people up and um, making sure that it's all very parochial um, and that people in different departments never speak to each other. Um, and, and one of the, certainly when I was just starting out as an academic, one of the um, really kind of inspirational things that I did was to do the university's teaching and learning course. And it wasn't really about the course itself. It was about all the people I got to meet on it. Because suddenly I wasn't just meeting anatomists. Um, I wasn't just meeting um, life sciences people. I was meeting people from oh, um, earth sciences and, you know, perhaps even um, physics, you know, and mathematicians and um, social scientists and musicians, you know, it was amazing to suddenly um, be kind of thrown into those conversations with people. Um, and it did, you know, the coffee breaks were fantastic. I could, I could make one, there's a slightly political point I could make, actually, never shy away from the opportunity to make a slightly political point. The, one of the problems we have in academia, I think, I'd be interested to know what Alice thinks about this, but it's, if you look at the way that we're funded now, then there's a great emphasis on, on some, uh, measures of productivity, such as numbers of citations, numbers of papers published in particular journals, um, so there's, there's, there's a career structure almost, a professional career structure imposed by the funding system um, because it wants to measure. The, the government likes to measure. They like data, and that's not bad in certain circumstances. But measurement affects behavior. Academics are clever, and they game systems. And one of the, way they game, the ways they, they game the funding system is obviously to try and get more funding. Um, I don't think the funding system, though, is, is structured in such a way that it knows what kind of behavior it wants to engender. It doesn't seem to me to engender or, or encourage the kind of behavior that you suggest, and, and I agree, is, is good behavior in academia, which is, is to, to, to wander around and, and, and wander through knowledge and go and talk to colleagues and, and maybe find other areas of research, because it takes a while. If I, want to, 
you know, if, if I cared now, I, I don't care, I've got to a point in my career where I don't really have to care about the number of publications that I put out. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a professor. I don't, there's a great famous, uh, um, Steve Jones always famously said, there's some worm, isn't there, that sw- swims around the in the ocean. sea squirt. Sea squirt. It swims yeah. around in the ocean. And, and it, has, it has eyes and, and a brain, it swims around. And then it finds a rock, it, take, it gets tenure on a rock and then absorbs its own brain <laughs> because it no longer has to move. And he says, in this way, it's similar to professors. <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> and, uh, so, but, but if you think about the, the people who are really doing the research, the postdocs, that what's the best way, the, the, the easiest way and the most effective way of getting loads of publications is to specialise and go right down one line and say, right, this is what I'm going to do. My career depends on this stuff. My promotion depends on it. My salary depends on it. So that's what I'm going to do. And that's the way that we're, we, we, we're, we're starting to see universities and the production of knowledge as some kind of production line that churns out, as I often say, cannon fodder for the knowledge economy. Right? That's not what sh- universities aren't that. They should be the places where people can... We could say, well, we're, we're both interested in this stuff. Let's, let's, let's collaborate. It might take us a couple of years because I've got to teach you about physics and you've got to teach me about biology. But somewhere <laughs> along the line, something interesting might come. I think it's becoming... <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, uh, I don't know whether it's just the fact that um, we're getting older. Um, but I, I think that academic freedom is being eroded. Um, and I think that there's less academic freedom now um, for academics generally than there was 10, 20 years ago. At least that's, that's how it feels. I think undoubtedly true. And it's really interesting talking to people like Paul Nurse, who is a Nobel Prize winner um, and the president of the Royal Society, and talking to him about his experiences um, in research leading up to um, his discovery of the proteins which regulate the cell cycle, which is what um, he won the Nobel Prize for. And one of the things he said to me was that... Um, they weren't scrutinised. And that he and his um, fellow scientists were working actually in an area of biology that nobody was very interested in. (laughs) Um, And that was how they were able to be creative Hmm. um, and how they were able to be be bold and to, you know, make these great great strides and um, make these incredible discoveries um, was the fact that they they weren't being scrutinised and they weren't being... um, constantly judged for the number of papers that they were producing mm. every year. Yeah, no, I mean, another example is one of my, my colleagues at Manchester, two colleagues, Andrei Gaim and Kostya Novoselov, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics uh, a few years ago now for discovering graphene, which is uh, already a multi-billion dollar industry. We've got a new £50 million pound graphene institute in Manchester, which is aiming to, to bring industry and physics together. So it's exactly what the government wants. One of the interviews, when he got his Nobel Prize for this revolutionary material that might revolutionise the 21st century, um, he uh, was asked why he hadn't gone to Harvard or Stanford. Why did he go to Manchester? Uh, and he said, well, the, uh, in Manchester, the, the university set up to, it allowed me to play, he said. It allowed me to, to, um, to, to follow these, these ideas. That I, and, and I think it's really important, and he always emphasizes that, and we have to listen to the, the great scientists, of which he's won, he won a Nobel Prize, play with freedom. That, that's, that, that pays benefits. Well, again, this plays into um, similarities between, I suppose, human culture and, uh, and evolution. And um, the fact that what we're basically seeing in, in evolution and the, the history of life on the planet is, is playing, mm. is, is organisms um, coming up with lots of different solutions and exploring the world of possible solutions. And sometimes they will get it wrong. I mean, we, we know that. And, um, and those then lead to dead ends. But sometimes they get it spectacularly right. Um, and, 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 but you can't predict that's the interesting thing about it, mm. I think, is that you can't predict when you're, when you're going to make those spectacularly right steps. You can't. <laughs> you just got to let people play. Right in the corner. Hi. Right um, so honoured to be here and see both of you on stage today. Just want to go back to talking of humanity being removed from the stage. Uh, am I right in understanding that the centre of universe is everywhere? And yeah. if so, doesn't that mean that we are at the center of the universe, as is everything else? And if so, isn't that the most beautiful thing? Yes. Is that, I... 
agree. I mean, they just expand very quickly. The, the, the Big Bang, people, I, I got asked a lot, actually, where did the Big Bang happen? You know, was it over there? And the answer, as you said, is it, it happened everywhere. All, all space was, was present at that time when the universe was hot and dense, and it's expanded and cooled ever since, but it was all there. So, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful way of thinking about it, actually. We are. We are at the centre. No, I think, interestingly, um, and it is, it is a different... Um, it's a different perspective, but for me, the, um, the idea of humans just being this tiny twig on a tree of life, which again could be seen as being um, um, the rise to insignificance and the, you know, we're, 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 not the, um, we're not the pinnacle of evolution anymore. We're not the, we're not the, um, the end point of evolution. We're not where it's all been heading um, for um, the last few hundred million years at all. Um, we are a little twig on the tree of life. Um, again, to me, that um, is a is a really um, comforting thought, actually, um, that we are we're part of the great tree of life on the planet, um, and also that we are um, we're part of nature and not separate from it. Because I think there's a great there's a great tradition in Western thought, um, religious and otherwise, actually, of really separating humans out um, and saying humans are over here, and nature with a capital N is somewhere over there. It's not Brian, but it's somewhere over there. Um, and, and, and what our modern view of biology and our modern view of evolution says is, no, you know, it's not. Nature's everywhere. This is nature, too. Just as much as the, the trees and the flowers and the birds, we are part of nature in the same way, perhaps, that we're at the origin of the, of the Big Bang. Um, we better have some more questions, then. Hello. Um, a bit of a broad question, but you mentioned quantum biology and also quantum physics. What do you think the future is that, or is of that? Um, the future of quantum biology. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's a very young field, as I as I understand it. One of the, the great one of the great questions, particularly with regard to photosynthesis, is why it's so efficient. And the, the, the suggestion is from the quantum biologists is that something called Essentially, quantum computing happens. So many different routes are taken simultaneously of the, of the electrons, if you like, through this, this molecular machinery. Many different routes are taken. And the, the most efficient one is the one that manifests itself, essentially. And that's the way you build a quantum computer. You do, you do many things in parallel, essentially. Um, so so, so what, what the quantum biologists would say, if you want a... If you talk about applications, then if you could build solar cells with the efficiency of photosynthesis, you wouldn't have an energy problem on this planet, and you could find some way of storing the energy and moving it around. But it's incredibly efficient. So if you can understand the biology, you can do better engineering. So that would be one one application of quantum biology. The future of quantum mechanics, just very briefly, there's still a, a huge debate. There's no debate that quantum mechanics works. It's our best theory of, of the only piece of physics, of fundamental physics that isn't quantum is Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is our explanation of gravity, which is 100 years old next year. Apart from that, it's all quantum. It works. Um, but the interpretation of it is still up for grabs. Um, so so the, there's a great deal of the almost philosophical aspects of quantum theory actually, about understanding what it really means, is, it, is there really, are there really an infinite number of universes in a different sense to the infinite number we spoke about earlier, where everything happens, it's a so-called quantum multiverse, but we can, we've only got five minutes left, so uh, what about you? There, is a, there are some things in science which we are um, quite uncertain of and we come up with hypotheses to describe things and, so, and, and quite often several competing hypotheses um, or models um, to describe things. Um, when it comes to quantum physics, I mean, could you, see, could you foresee anything that would, um, that would essentially replace that as a, as a model? Is there, or, or do you think what we're just going to see is refinements of that model? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, it, it's, it's actually a very... It's a simple theory. Um, at its heart, it's a, all that there is in quantum theory is, is a statement of what happens to... This is my interpretation. What happens to particles? But how do particles move around? And that's myself and my colleague, Jeff Forshaw, at Manchester, who I write books with, and he's a theoretical physicist, works in this area. He likes to emphasise this, and I think he's right. Particles are particles. So the only question in physics is what we call the dynamics of a particle. If I put a particle there, what's it going to do? 
And in Newtonian physics, uh, a particle stays in a state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line unless acted upon by a force. That's the law, the dynamical law, essentially. Then you have F equals MA that tells you what happens when you apply a force to it. Um, in quantum theory, there's a different rule, which says that if you put a particle at a point, then where, what, is, what is it going to do? Well, at the next instant, it's equally likely to be anywhere in the universe in what's called non-relativistic quantum mechanics. And there's a slight modification, but not as much as you'd think when you put relativity in. It's still going to hop crazily around. Um, there's a probability it'll hop around. What's interesting about quantum theory, though, so is it tells you the rule to calculate that. So I put something there. What's the probability it's going to be over here? There's a rule that tells you how to do it. And it's using something called the action. So you just work it out. If you put a particle in a region, what you find is that it's less likely to hop because of so-called interference effects. And, and the, the, the world that we're familiar with emerges from that rule. But it, I, the only thing I want to emphasise there is that the, it's just a replacement of New, Newton's laws with a different rule. And that's all. And, and all the so-called strangeness emerges from two things. One is it's a bit of an odd rule. Uh, particles don't stay where you put them. Um, although they do, broadly speaking, when you allow them to, when you have big ensembles of them. And um, secondly, I, I said probability there. So that the key thing that stunned people 100 years ago, people like Rutherford and, and Niels Bohr when they were, and Einstein, when they were thinking about these things, is that the, the theory is probabilistic. So it tells you what's the probability I'll find something over there. That came from things like radioactivity. If you go back 100 years, people were looking at radioactive decay and they saw that things have a half-life. So what you can do with the nuclear, Marie Curie and people like that, looking at nuclei and saying, well, in, in 10 minutes, half of this radon gas or whatever the half-life is has decayed away. But for an individual nucleus, you can't predict when it's going to decay. You can only predict statistically when, if you had 100 of them, I know when there's, on the average, there'll be 50 left. And that's the really strange bit of quantum theory, I think, that nature behaves in a probabilistic way at a subatomic level. Well, and so actually at all levels, it behaves in a probabilistic way. And the probabilities are just hidden from us because we are large in ensembles of particles in, in big distances, basically, that, that we exist in. It is interesting because I, I, I'm a great fan of T.H. Huxley, who is Darwin's bulldog. And T.H. Huxley described um, science as an extension of common sense, um, as in, in, an extension of the kind of rational way that we approach the world around us. And, um, and I'm with him on that. But what we find by doing that is sometimes extremely odd and, it, and then doesn't seem like common sense at all. Absolutely. I, I think I said in the human universe it was scientists remove the adult affliction of common sense from their minds and, and in order to observe nature. Because you're right, you, you can't have... I think the point is you can't have prejudice. So if your common sense is something... About, I have a prejudice about how nature works. You tend to be tripped up, don't you? I think we've got, for example, one more question. One more I'm question. looking at this thing. So yeah, we've got one minute. <gasps> That's oh, go on, there's someone in the middle there. Gentleman, in the middle. Right. To finish off with. So, um, if science could only be done by men or women for the next hundred years, what would you choose and why? <laughs> well, you, you mean, did your question mean that if, if, if you said only men or only women could do science? See, we, we said actually before we came on that the, the suggestion was, um, why don't you ask yourself the final question? And I said, yeah, it's always the case that the last question is the mad one. <laughs> not, not mad in the sense that it's a good question, isn't it? But I mean, it's the difficult one. Uh, Alice? Um, I, think to, uh, <laughs> um, I think to be fair, historically, and to redress the balance, then there is only one answer to that, and it would just be women. <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, but, this is the serious point, idea, which is that we, we miss 
the, the, so there's obviously it's clear that there's no that there's no predisposition to science of the sexes. You know, you you have a, a, a pool of talent, and we need more scientists and engineers in the economy, and we're missing out on a whole swathe of talent. So even if you don't impose any uh, moral um, position that you think well it should be fifty fifty for moral reasons, if you put that aside, it would be fifty fifty for. It, it, for talent reasons, and so we're missing a whole pool of talent. So, so the reason it has to be 50-50 is because that's the way that you access the best scientists. I think that sounds fair. So, um, <laughs> I think that's the, the, yeah. if extremely unlikely, unfortunately. Well, it's good. I mean, in biology now, I think the gender balance is reasonably it's reasonably balanced, isn't it? It is, it is. And um, I think speaking to um, engineers um, about the the dreadful paucity of uh, of women in um, professional engineering, 7% of professional engineers in this country are women, um, we should be looking at what happened in biology and in medicine um, and learning from that um, because we know from those experiments that it is possible to change. Um, and, and just as Brian said, it's a, um, there's obviously a, a moral imperative to do so if you believe in the equality of the sexes. But actually, there's a, a, there's a much more, um, I suppose, a less altruistic um, uh, reason for doing so as well, which is that if you want to have the brightest minds involved in tackling these questions, then it's got to be 50-50. Okay, well, I think that's uh, we, we've now run out of time. Can, can I just say thank you? you absolutely wonderful questions, and I, I found it extremely enjoyable this evening. So, so thank you, and, and thank you, Alice. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>